together, uh, Lazarus 3D produced the patient-specific models for kidney cancer patients. It was 10 patients. And even though it seems small, it was actually the largest study at the time. And I think it could still be. Hello, Ben Beebs, and welcome to the CareerLift podcast, where we bring you impactful guests, industry professionals, messages, and advice on how you can begin to create the career of your dreams and succeed in your path. Tune in weekly on Mondays and give your career a lift. Welcome, Ben Beeves. Today on the podcast, I am joined by Smriti Zeneveld, co-founder and president of Lazarus 3D. Lazarus 3D is helping to improve healthcare quality and outcomes by enabling patient-specific surgical rehearsal with 3D printed models. Essentially, Lazarus prints 3D models for surgical rehearsal in a way that has never been done before. Stay tuned in this episode where we talk about how Smriti and her co-founder began Lazarus 3D while working towards their PhDs, how they funded the company, and how Lazarus 3D is revolutionizing the surgical rehearsal industry and is helping save lives. I first met Smriti at the Ben Venture Conference last year, and I'm honored to have her on this podcast. Thank you, Megan, first of all, for having me uh, on, on this podcast. And BBC uh, was actually our first exposure to Oregon and the entrepreneurship community and what other people in the community are doing and all of the talent here. So uh, it was really um, an awesome event. And I, I had the luxury to meet you and talk to you, learn about what you're doing at such a young age. Uh, I was inspired by that myself. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you came up and chatted with me. Yeah, I've been thinking about you for the past month. And I was like, just as a note, maybe I'll talk to you about this later. But we're doing some other stuff with women and entrepreneurship um, coming up. So I'll have to talk to you about that too later. But yeah, I'm excited to excited to have you on and to have made that connection. And for students who don't know what the Ben Venture Conference is, I think most of our students do, but the Ben Venture Conference happens once a year, and it's essentially in, uh, I think it's the largest angel investment conference in the West that's held here in Bend, and companies um, apply from all over the U.S. to um, pitch their companies for investment. So with that, if you could tell me a little bit about your background, how you began Lazarus, and what led you to beginning Lazarus 3D with your co-founder. Yeah, so um, before we founded Lazarus 3D, both me and Jacques, uh, Dr. Jacques Zanavald, uh, my co-founder, were students uh, in the Texas Medical Center. And we were focused on our PhDs in genetics. And we were actually doing something very unrelated uh, to Lazarus 3D's focus now. Uh, we were understanding the biology of disease, uh, especially neurodegenerative conditions that cause blindness. Uh, in children and even in adults. Um, so, however, since the Texas Medical Center, it's so large, we have so many different opportunities and avenues to explore. So as part of that, you know, sort of um, open-mindedness and like the ability to explore, we uh, started asking some basic questions to our uh, fellow uh, fellow students that were in the medical program, you know, so they were MD, PhD students. And then we were also chatting with uh, our colleagues that are in surgery uh, and asking them just very simple questions like, how do they learn? Uh, and, you know, one of our friends was telling us that he was going to perform his first surgery like the next day. So we were chatting with him on a, a shuttle and he, uh, we asked him how 
he felt about that and if he felt comfortable and was he excited and had he practiced and he said that you know he hadn't really practiced because you can't practice on a patient uh you just do right you do the surgery on the patient but he had had some practice during his residency where he observed the physicians in the operating room and he had also done some hands-on training but it was on a bell pepper and um he had basically removed the seeds from the bell pepper as his surgical like hands-on training experience um yeah so that seemed a little bit shocking so we laughed at first and then we thought it was hilarious but it wasn't so funny uh when we learned that's how people actually get trained um you know it's either you're learning on the job uh which is a 5 to 10 years learning period uh post medical school um and in those years you are in the operating room with your seniors that are experts probably uh and you know you're learning by observing uh but you're not learning by doing and then the first time that you get exposed to doing your first case is your real first case so we felt that there was a lag so the more we talked to people the more we learned about the sort of grave details of how this process works how the education system is in the medical system right now and what the limitations are what the uh really senior physicians see as lacking uh and what lacking is like that transition period from doing you know essentially obs- observation so it's a, a, a it's a apprenticeship apprenticeship model where you're le- learning by observing and then you're actually just learning mm-hmm. but practicing on the patient so uh yeah it sounds really odd but that's how it is um and even though we were i was actually a first year student uh in my rotations at the time i met with one of the head of uh urological robotic surgeries at Baylor College of Medicine which is where i was doing my phd and asked him well what if he thought what if uh, uh what if there was a uh soft tissue printed model that he could surgically operate on would he find benefit in that and he said that if we could create uh, a solution like that for him he would be very very interested in not just you know buying the products from us but doing a clinical study with us and that's kind of how we started this entire um endeavor and prior to that jacques had actually built his own 3d printers from his own sort of investment um as a student he bought parts and assembled everything by himself and then it took us like a few months to go from printing in plastics which is what he was doing for fun mm-hmm. uh selling like little parts at anime conventions sure. believe it or not to going uh into the soft silicone space which is something that really no commercial 3d printers can do that uh even right now so there's a lot of um hard work behind the scenes actually in our kitchen uh till we you know we're able to fulfill that uh sort of promise that we had made in our heads that we would make a realistic soft tissue replica of a kidney for uh this urology physician yeah and when we showed it to him he was wowed he was like shocked and it was brilliant um he he operated on the 
prototype, which we think is horrible. I mean, mm-hmm. now looking back, sure. um, your first run. Yeah, and he was amazed by it. Like it was a really unique experience for him because he'd never done that before. Wow. Yeah. That. Wow. That's incredible. I think it's kind of it's really interesting too because it sounds like it really just started from you asking questions. You know, this one day and just found out that this was an issue. And yeah, it sounds, it seems ama- like incredible that just that stuff like this doesn't exist already. That's better, you know, in a field that's been around forever. It's like, why hasn't someone invented something better? Yeah. Every time we work with doctors or med- medical device uh, partners or clients, we always ask them, what are they doing right now? Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, the we want to be respectful of their answers, sure. but sometimes it's just really ridiculous. And We've heard everything from, you know, they are practicing on a banana, which is very standard, actually. Uh, And it's probably not a horrible platform to get started out. But to go from that to like really suturing patients is, we think, inadequate. Um, And we can do better. Um, Yeah. So it's fascinating. (laughs) It's, It's a little bit scary. Yeah, absolutely. So how did you go, how did you begin like the development process of the models after that first one? Like how much, how did you do your research and did you have to do a lot of research in order to do that? And, and how did you work with like doctors or, you know, hospitals or whoever you worked with to start, I guess, researching what was needed? Yeah. So the goal at the beginning was to recreate a kidney, right? Uh, but not just a, a healthy kidney. It was a kidney with the tumor. So what we first did was observed a bunch of surgeries mm-hmm. uh, and where the physicians were actually performing them on patients to understand the motion of their movement and, you know, what techniques are being uh, are going on and where the critical steps are just to understand what was the complexity like in, in terms of like the nature of the surgery itself. Then uh, we had to also uh, understand the material properties of the tissue. So what we ended up doing was actually going to the butcher shop and buying like hunks of organs uh, that we were basically dissecting ourselves and um, testing out. And then we were also really lucky um, early on to collaborate with some really brilliant people at the Cleveland Clinic uh, Foundation. And so they were doing some mechanical testing for us um, on uh, uh, fresh cadaveric tissue and then the porcine tissue, as well as our synthetic, like the Lazarus 3D synthetic tissue. Um, They were able to really understand the similarities and where we were lacking and then they would identify improvements and we would make iterations. So the whole process was actually happening really fast. Um, The other advantage we had was that the physicians we were working with locally were very, very um, engaged with us. And even though surgeons are in general, very busy people, Mm -hmm. these people actually make time for us to like just barge into their, um, you know, uh, clinic or their office and just have a conversation or like go there, drop off a few samples and ask them for their feedback. So it was really great um, that we could just do that um, and get, not wait for like even hours. It would just be like, oh, hey, we're coming by. Um, and they would cut into the tissue and they would say, oh, yes, that feels very good. And oftentimes it would be, you know, oh, it's buttery or you know, something very um, <laughs> uh, layman uh, in terms of, you know, the communication, uh, because I, I guess it was 
just really easy for them to describe it that way. And then of course, on the mechanical side, we were um, trying to replicate the Young's modulus by doing a lot of testing um, on the real parts and the synthetic parts and matching them. So yeah, in terms of research from literature, there was a lot of data, but the data was just so not unified mm -hmm. and the range uh, from the, of the data sets, depending on the study, were so variable that we couldn't really rely on that. So we had to do it ourselves. You had to go in and do your own research is what you're saying, rather than relying on what was already done. Yeah, we looked at literature, but uh, it just seemed that depending on what instruments people were using or what metrics they were using or what parameters they were using, the uh, properties <laughs> were just really not in sync. Uh, it, you know, the measurements were not in sync with each other. So it was odd. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. That's really cool to hear about how... Uh... How you grew it. Do you think, I mean, were the surgeons, were they, um, do you think they were so like apt to just let you come in because it was something, it is something that they really needed? Yeah, exactly. Um, I think that we were not pushing anything on them. This is something that they themselves wanted. So I think we're just happy that, you know, there was someone out there that was, you know, working towards a solution. Um, and they were so excited, uh, like I said, when they did their first surgery. Um, and this was a long time ago. I think it was like 2014 or 2015 okay. um, when they did their first case. And um, I think even though I said that the first prototypes were so, you know, not great, uh, the physicians liked it a lot because they have never like surgical rehearsal is a new term that never existed before so i think um we told them to not be nice to us we told them to be as mean and as critical as possible uh because we wanted to really improve uh the model and make it to be really like perfect yeah. um but they were like no you don't understand this is perfect this is something that we have which we didn't have before so yeah, it was uh, the shared enthusiasm that drive, uh, that was the biggest driver, I think. Awesome. So then even those first renditions that they really enjoyed, you have improved upon? Oh, drastically. Yeah. Yes. So, so um, at that time, we were working with soft polymers and additives and essentially learning uh, how to manipulate uh, those materials. But now we've come to a point where, you know, we have... Um, it's proprietary, but we have basically mapped out different tissue types, different planes, how to, uh, you know, uh, create, uh, like different levels of planes between, uh, tissue types, all of them. Uh, at that time, we didn't know really much about it. And then how to create, uh, certain kinds of friction in the tissue. Um, so as you're cutting into it or suturing it, you sometimes feel like the tendons or ligaments feel very, very different than muscle and stuff like that. So we were able to learn how to uh, basically polish our materials uh, by just minutely manipulating like a property or two and then really refining it. So, yeah, uh, it's drastically better now. Um, yeah. When did you first start Lazarus 3D? Or like, when, when would you say you started going down the path of creating it? Um, I think that Lazarus 3D was founded as an LLC. It was actually Jacques Zanovelt LLC uh, in 2014. Then we switched over uh, pretty quickly 
all this time we were still working out of our kitchen sort of on the side while we were doing our full-time PhDs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then 2016 wow. is when we moved out of our kitchen. Okay. So I would say that 2016 is sort of like, I would say that's officially when Lazarus was a corporation um, where we, you know, uh, had moved past, is this a product that is going to make a difference to this is a product. We had active paying clients. We were working with some of the top institutions, both in the country and outside of the US, like in Germany and in uh, Dubai and in India. So it was like very, it was very obvious that this is something that is our mission. Um, And even at that time, like I didn't graduate actually till 2018, right? So I started my PhD uh, in 2015 and graduated uh, 2014 and graduated in 2018. Uh, I was still part time, but I was so like excited that I would go into lab, I would do my work and then I would leave, uh, basically shower, eat dinner and then go into like Lazarus, Mm -hmm. which uh, was actually, like I said, we've moved out of our kitchen. It was still like a really small facility um, in the hospitals, um, in the, in the, in the medical center, Mm -hmm. we would go there and then basically work all night uh, till like three or four in the morning. Um, And then at some point we're like, okay, we really need to sleep. Uh, uh, But it was just a lot of excitement. And then weekends, we would do the same thing. So um, the good thing that I really liked uh, when when we first started out uh, was that it was Jacques and I, and we were both equally motivated and self-driven. So nobody had to push the other person. Um, We mostly had to say, look, you know, you're going to stress yourself out too much. So please slow down. Like that's, that's the way it was. So we knew that when we grow our team, that's how we want it to be. That the people shouldn't have to be um, basically observed or like controlled or I don't know, told what to do. Basically, they should know what they're doing. Uh, of course, some level of management is required, but mostly at that early stage, you need to be driving your own self <laughs> and pushing each other too. Like, hey, did you do this kind of thing? But like, not in a mean way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, just to like, be able to be starting something that you're really excited about, I think is yeah important and maybe necessary, I guess, if you're going to, you know, if you're going to build something big, because you really probably did have to work really hard in the beginning and, and um, that can, you're not yeah. passionate about it. Yeah, I think at the beginning, um, talking to other founders, uh, you know, both like in our space and outside of our space, like in very unrelated spaces. Some of the trends that I observe is people spend a lot of effort uh, fundraising early on. And I think that's like kind of if they don't raise their capital, then they won't be able to uh, go forward with their next Mm -hmm. steps. Uh, I think that we didn't do that probably because we really had to manage our time, which was limited in a very, very efficient Mm -hmm. way. So uh, focused on developing the product and already we had a client since the beginning. So we wanted to make sure that the first client was very, very happy um, instead of, you know, trying to divert our focus. So that was the first. And then after that, we ended up, uh, you know, uh, the physician that we were working with ended up presenting at uh, one of the largest urology conferences, the American Urological Association. So um, at that time, they asked us, oh, it would be really fun if we could go exhibit at this event. Um, 
really large conference. So we did. And uh, it was just like really two of us and a uh, team member uh, that was working with us part time on the sales side uh, that incidentally met us and we like really got along uh, and showed up to um, Boston. I think it was Boston um, one day with like our booth set up, which we built ourselves. And uh, then we were basically bombarded with questions like, can you other body parts? Uh, are you only restricted to making kidneys? Um, what What's your timeline? What's your uh, pricing? Do you have a catalog? Do you have a website? It was like all the, like, can I fill out a, a order form? And we were like, oh, okay, like slow down there. Like, you know, but, but this was all happening really fast. So, yeah. So at that point, when you were setting up that booth, you were pretty much had just started and you were just working with this one client pretty much. And it just kind of happened that you were able to go to this, to this large conference. Yeah. Yeah. So this group was like basically presenting the pilot clinical study that we had worked on together. Uh, Lazarus 3D produced the patient specific models for kidney cancer patients. It was 10 patients. And even though it seems small, it was actually the largest study at the time. And I think it might still be. Um, and they had shown that, you know, creating, we had shown that creating the, the patient specific models in a realistic manner was possible and it was anatomically accurate uh, and representative of the patient's case. And the physicians were able to benefit from the, the models. And then also the patients were able to benefit from it in some ways, uh, which we originally hadn't thought about that. And that was like really nice. Um, we even got to interact with some of our patients uh, that were actually interviewed by the news and stuff, but uh, that's separate. Uh, so, so yeah, um, this event was the first first exposure uh, where we actually presented Lazarus 3D, um, you know, to the world, uh, to the to the urology uh, world, and um, we ended up getting all these orders and clients, and everyone wanted different things. So. That's kind of like the launch, I would say, because at that time we knew that there was a market and we knew that it wasn't just restricted to one particular product or application. Uh, it was much broader than that. I think the challenge at that point was how do we like grow in a manner that is something that's we, that's something that we can manage and control. Absolutely. How did you go about that? Like, how did you start to grow um, and decide, you know, who you're going to start to work with? And if you would like to talk about how did you go about getting funding? Did you bootstrap it a little in the beginning? Or I mean, it sounds like you didn't do funding right away. Yeah. So at the beginning, um, Jacques and I basically invested our uh, savings into uh, the company and getting started. And we didn't really think about it much because we knew that this is something that we wanted to really do and go forward with. Um, later on, when we hired our first uh, employee number one and employee number two and, you know, uh, signed a lease uh, for our space, uh, for, our, uh, you know, our production facility, we, of course, needed uh, some amount of capital. So instead of raising a really large sum, like a few million dollars, uh, we actually were raising just uh, in small subsets. Uh, on a need basis. And actually, our funders were our customers. So, um, so who did we raise money from? So that was actually friends and family. 
at the beginning, we were really um, telling everybody that this is a really high risk. So you should really not invest in us if you are scared to lose everything that you invest, right? So that was like our, you know, very blunt, honest, open truth that we were telling uh, to the people. Um, But they really believed in us. And they said that I can't believe this doesn't exist. So this needs to exist. So I don't care if it fails or whatever, but I need this to at least somebody to try it. So that's sort of what motivated them. And uh, then, yeah, and then later we were able to get angel investments from, again, um, people in the community. This was back in Houston that really, like, you know, heard our pitch, like, resonated with the mission and really were, it was like, this is a no-brainer. So they invested in us. Right now, we have actually, um, we also had a lot of advisors early on through accelerator programs where we participated in. Um, uh, one of them was Mass Challenge, which is uh, U- University of Massachusetts based out of Boston, but now it's global. Um, and we were participating in the Texas cohort and also Capital Factory. And the uh, mentors, there's two kinds. One that tell you that go raise all the money that you possibly can and won't need uh, because you'll blow it like faster than you imagine. The other that basically tell you to avoid VCs at all costs. So, you know, because you, you don't want to uh, lose focus and just do what your investors want you to do rather than what you want to do. So we already, we were cash flow positive uh, because we had, like I said, we were lucky to have a lot of interest and clients since the beginning. So we didn't push that really um, too much. And we just kept postponing it and postponing it. And even till date, we haven't raised funds from VC. But now we're so close to our next biggest milestone. Um, um, at the beginning, we were just loaning ourselves money or getting money from you know friends and family and angel investors. And that's been about like less than a million dollars. It's I think like $654,000. But but now we're close to our FDA clearance of the patient-specific models, which in 2018, you know, it was still like, oh, this is a futuristic technology. Um, No one knew really like what regulation would look like from FDA's perspective. But then the uh, FDA and the American uh, Medical Association worked together with the Radiology Society of North America, and all three of them were like, yes, this is an important technology. It needs to be regulated because it will impact patients' lives. So they created like a guideline, basically. Um, so uh, since that time, we have uh, basically focused on getting our FDA clearance for this technology, which is going to happen in the next few months. And now it's like, well, we want to raise money because we have a real reason to raise money so that we can raise awareness for patients, uh, doctors and hospitals that this technology is on the market. So it's really going to be a marketing push and awareness and partnering with um, leaders in this industry. So for that, we're finally raising money. Um, We still haven't really focused all our effort on it. So I don't really know. On raising money. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) It'll it'll unfold when it will. (laughs) 
I think so. I think right now our biggest focus is getting that FDA clearance. Um, and then there's a lot of regulatory paperwork um, that needs to be prepared uh, at that time. So that's, again, that's our primary focus. And then getting insurance on board because we want this to be reimbursable in the future when it is uh, a medical device and uh, already there are CPT codes for billing. Now we just need to make sure that the payers will actually reimburse against the billing codes. I think we need help like on the finance side, you know, it's like, what's the best strategy to fundraise? Uh, and there are so many books and articles on this topic. I just feel that our, me and Jacques, like both of us feel that we need to find, um, it's like getting married. You need to find somebody that you really, your your vision is so aligned that there is no debate that there is any fear that you can conquer your mission. I think that's the kind of investor that we're looking for. Absolutely. Which I mean, totally makes sense because investors do have a lot of, I mean, once people invest, they have, you know, say in your company and that's kind of a big, that's kind of a big deal. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's really, it's interesting to hear your, um, just your take on funding and how you got maybe different perspectives on funding. Uh, I'm really early stage of my company, but just what I've seen too, and I've heard is just, yeah, there's so many different voices and perspectives in the, in the entrepreneurship world on what, you know, what you should do and how you should do it. And so it's, it's just cool to hear that you were kind of like, okay, this is what we're doing. Um, and this works best, best for us. And Exactly. I think if you have customers, then they are your investors because totally. they're, it's like what I said, you want your vision to be so aligned that, you know, everybody's on board. Like they're not out there to, uh, you know, attack you or, you know, do something where it's not your, it's not what you want. They're not forcing you to do something that is against your will. So <laughs> we've heard those stories. Uh, I'm sure you have too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But if your customer is your investor, then it's very cool because they just want you to do your best and you want the same. So, <laughs> Which is how, I mean, how it should be, right? You need to make sure that your customers too, like believe in your product. Exactly. So in, in terms of strategy, one thing we're thinking about is a lot of investment uh, groups in health tech or healthcare are from uh, VC arms of uh, insurance providers. Mm, okay. So approaching them makes a lot of sense to me because it's like that thing where it's like they're your customer and they're mm-hmm. investing in you and you both want each other to do well. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's it. it sounds like a good strategy. Well, okay, so changing gears a little bit, could you talk more about like how Lazarus 3D is used in just like learning in school or residency, and then also how it is used or will be used more in patient-specific surgeries? Yeah, that's perfect. That's a great question. So yes, we are in hospitals and residency programs, uh, medical schools, um, all of that. Uh, so physicians, you know, educators, Uh, in this industry are using our products for training purposes. So for training, you don't need the the product to be patient specific. It just needs to be resemblant of a human, you know, organ versus a fruit or a vegetable uh, and preferably has a disease. So cadavers don't have diseases typically. Uh, If you are a resident learning how to perform uh, surgery on a kidney cancer patient, 
then you would hope that your your training platform has that component, right? So we we are recreating that. Um, we try to make those models very affordable and reusable, if possible, or modular, so that you know you can get multi uh, multi use and multiple rounds of training out of it. The patient specific mm-hmm. models we have done till date um, on a research basis. So all of our patient specific models till date are under IRB protocols where patient consent is obtained prior to using their data for the production of these models. And then the physicians have been using them uh, basically as case studies uh, for their most challenging cases uh, so that they can optimize outcomes for their patients and then also publish their findings. Uh, But once this is a medical device, then we will no longer need to follow this structure. So, um, So our goal going forward would be that we are going to drive our focus from training models uh, for education purposes to, uh, you know, focusing on the clinical applications, um, right? There is going to be a huge shift in that sense, although the product is basically, you know, it's the same product, but it's different uh, because it's going to have a much, I don't want to say it's going to have a much bigger impact because even at the education level, you need to learn your skills in a proper way so that later on when you become a surgeon, you will really do an excellent job on your patients. But I would say that it's a, it's a more um, a focused um, impact on uh, driving patient safety and outcomes, right? Um, yeah, so I think that the focus is really going to be changing. And I think right now we are just trying to make those little changes in our head, you know, as we uh, as we approach that FDA clearance. Um, our biggest clients, I think you'd asked that earlier, right? Where you tried to, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. um, are actually, yeah. So not all medical schools can afford, um, you know, really high fidelity models. So some of them are not using, not not using Lazarus 3D products by choice, but because I guess shockingly they're not well funded. Uh, to train the surgeons of the next generation. So that's like a limiting component for them. So they have to apply for grants or whatever and get the funding to uh, to purchase the models. But some of the larger medical schools uh, that really want to be the state of the art and really be at the cutting edge of whatever technology can offer are uh, using our products. So for example, Cornell is an example. They, they use our models routinely in their uh, sim centers. And then also medical device companies. So the manufacturers of the surgical tools um, need to train the physicians, which are their end users, on how to use those tools in a safe way, preferably, so that they can prevent lawsuits. So <laughs> these are multi-billion dollar companies. Uh, you probably have heard of them, like Olympus or uh, Boston Scientific. And they have very healthy budgets and they want, they are advocates of, you know, uh, patient safety and, and those kinds of things. So they've been uh, our largest buyers till date. Do you guys usually approach um, people that you work with or do people approach you or companies? Right. Uh, right now, uh, we have no, we, we've never had a full-time sales rep. 
So most of our clients or um, most of the, let's see, how do I say this? Mm, yeah, so we've not had a full-time salesperson till date, but we do go to trade shows. So those are our uh, marketing efforts. So we go to medical conferences and then somebody may come over and say, hey, you know, I'm really interested in this and that. Do you think we talk after the event? Um, and continue this conversation. So then when we talk after the event, we basically, they, they explain to us their pain point, and then we explain to them what we can offer. And then that's it. They buy our product after that. So um, so we don't really like do sales in a traditional way, like advertisements, because already it is a, it is a sensitive uh, space. Like it's, specialized right it's surgery so actually early on on facebook we try to like put a video advertisement of one of our products and it was actually um like we were declined publishing that advertisement because it had like blood right so yeah so it's it's not really a product that is uh consumer facing in a very direct way um yeah so it it needs to there is some um, I guess you have to be careful how you uh, advertise it, what you say, what you claim, uh, where you advertise. So all of this has to be taken into account. So most of our, uh, I guess, outreach has been on social media, uh, mm -hmm. Twitter or LinkedIn, and it's been free. So yeah, that's even better. <laughs> And it's not by choice. I mean, we would love to have ads, paid paid ads, um, but it's just that I kind of see the point. You know, you don't want to be watching like uh, a realistic surgery being performed on a synthetic model, but you may not know it's synthetic. So it may be scary. So. Absolutely. I mean, you were kind of alluding to this, but it, is it difficult to target your audience that way? Um, I, I feel like our target audience... Uh, that's not the best way to reach them anyways, right? Um, because they are a bit more uh, in the sophisticated specialty uh, in medicine. I think the best approach is has been word of mouth, actually. So if we have a physician that used our patient-specific model or even our training models, uh, and then they talk to their colleague, and then their colleague is like, oh, you do urology, I do neurosurgery, but I can use this. Uh, because I see the benefit of it in my uh, area, then they'll basically contact us or, um, you know, our colleague, uh, our client will tell us about the new contact and we will reach out to them. Yeah, it's a lot of uh, organic communication right now. Yeah, <laughs> going, I think going forward, it's going to be more streamlined because it's patient specific models. Um, patients will be able to pay out of pocket. Um, so we're targeting specifically patients undergoing surgery for uh, cancer. So I think that's more targeted. And I don't think that it's going to be this um, whole, like, it's going to be different in terms of the message, right? It's like, how do you optimize your, uh, your uh, outcomes or, or your point of care? Like, how do you get the best care possible? So so basically, a patient, if they know about your product, and they're going through a surgery, they can connect with their doctor and then connect with you. Exactly. Exactly. So um, it could be either way. The doctor tells the patient that this 
opportunity exists or mm-hmm. the patient tells the doctor, hey, have you heard about Lazarus 3D? Uh, yeah. you know, I read about them and then whatever. And then the physician may decide that this is something that is of value to them. And in which case we already have a HIPAA compliant server that they can go and submit their inquiry uh, and the patient uh, information, which is already de-identified. So we don't even need to know who the patient is, uh, but we are a healthcare provider. So we are a registered um, you know, entity. Uh, we have our NPI number. So even if we were to have the patient information, we are allowed to have that information because of the way we have set up our um, company now. So basically the, the physician would be like, oh yeah, this is um, something I wanna do. Uh, and then they would get a model within 24 hours of sharing the data it will take us an additional 24 hours for them to provide the model. So within 48 hours, they'll have their uh, physical copy in their hands. It's a pretty quick turnaround. It's awesome that you're able to do that. So maybe kind of on that note, do you have any maybe stories that you can share that maybe illustrate maybe any Lazarus 3D success or just any story that you would like to share about Lazarus 3D? Yeah, there are so many. So at the beginning, we were really, like I said, not focused on pitching or, you know, fundraising. So at the beginning, I was really like nervous and I never had a, a pitch deck that I had, you know, gone publicly and shared with the with my community or with uh, colleagues or investors. So the first time I presented was at the um, U.S. Pan-Asian American Chambers of Commerce uh, event, and it was a really I think it was like a four or five minute platform. So it was really short. And, um, and, and I learned that when I was presenting, I got really emotional and I was going to like cry, but I had to be strong. And then after I presented, I was like so fearless. So um, because I was like, oh, this is not, not difficult, you know, this is. So then I, um, I found, I discovered something um, that, you know, I'm all, outgoing person but I wasn't so confident that I could present my entire like startup in a five minute uh pitch on a really large stage without uh, you know like losing it <laughs> so I think that was a really important moment for me because now I kind of try to take the lead on that and uh, present at conferences or uh, events that are national or even international. I think that was a good success story. Um, the other, like, really biggest driver of what what Lazarus 3D is and what it means to me and to our, to our team is the the way we are affecting or impacting people, like real people. So uh, the first one of the first patients that we created a model for um, really thought he was going to die basically because he was undergoing chemo for other kinds of uh, treatments that he had been treated, like surgically treated for, and then had kidney cancer. And then he had other, still other um, comorbidities. So um, the physicians had said, if you end up on dialysis, like that's it. There is nothing we can do Uh, because you can't process like, or it's not really recommended to be on chemotherapy with being on dialysis because you need the kidney to like filter um, all the toxins. So when his uh, surgeon did the surgery uh, uh, rehearsal on our model, 
he was so excited. He actually wanted to have a copy of his kidney. Like he wanted it personally. Yeah, the patient one. So we were like, oh, who is this patient? Like we really want to meet with this person. And so we got to meet with him. And um, he was so, um, it was such a different experience. Like it wasn't sad. It was so positive. And we personally, like I cried, but <laughs> like not, not in front of the patient, like behind the scenes, but it was really emotional. And the fact that he didn't end up on dialysis and is like still like healthy and everything. And we got his family too. Like that was huge. So even though like people can be skeptical, it's like, oh, how are you going to grow? How are you going to scale? How are you going to make money? Like, will you get your X, Y, and Z um, goals accomplished? It's like, well, yeah, sure. You can always reach for the, you know, higher um, milestones, but we've already made a difference in a way that we think, I think that it's just an honor to have that ability to do something like that so absolutely I don't think without Lazarus like I don't think I would have had any opportunity like this like sure that's hard to imagine for me yeah that's awesome to hear I mean your product it's so obvious to see how it has the potential and already is impacting so many lives yeah I think our biggest fear is that like we get delayed um, in getting this product to people and then more lives are lost or like you know it's just that guilt like Okay, this could have been an impact on, you know, some uh, subset of the population of patients undergoing surgery, but, you know, we didn't work fast enough or hard enough. Um, And that was like something that we would be really disappointed in ourselves with. Awesome. Okay, this one is maybe more of a personal one, but I kind of just like to ask it. So what would you say is the most important thing that you've learned in your life? How has it impacted you or just... I think the most important lesson uh, in my life has been to not say the word, but like, you know, uh, I think the word, but basically ruins everything. So if you have something that you want to achieve and you may not have all the, you know, resources and means, uh, whether it's financial or whether it's time or whatever, um, don't blame it on something else. Like just do your best uh, and achieve it in even a small way. Um, so if you're trying to, you know, create a rocket ship and maybe you're a student, you may not achieve that right now. But you can start by designing on free casuals or creating a sketch, like even on a piece of paper, something that brings you closer to what you're trying to achieve without using the word but. <laughs> So it's like, yeah, just starting and not not making excuses for why you're, you know. Yeah, I think that it's very easy to uh, to blame or, um, you know, find an excuse uh, for not doing something. But if you're passionate about it, then you shouldn't let anything stop you. Absolutely. In the last podcast episode, we talked a little bit about starting before you're ready. And that kind of ties into that. And just, um, you know, if you don't think you're ready for something, just start and then make that first step. Is there anything else that you would like to share with students about Lazarus 3D or about your journey in entrepreneurship? Yeah, I think that my uh, whatever (laughs) words of wisdom for uh, 
aspiring entrepreneurs uh, in bioengineering or just in general is that if you think some like a company like Lazarus 3D is uh, interesting to you or intrigues you, then don't be shy to just email me or find me on social media and introduce yourself and just be really candid and straightforward. Like you don't need to be fake and, you know, try to like suck up to me, just be candid uh, and honest. And, you know, so I would say that if you are interested in working with a startup or having your own startup one day, but you uh, find someone that inspires you or intrigues you or your interests career-wise or even personally, then don't be shy to reach out to them and contact them even if it's picking up the phone and calling them um, or emailing them or connecting with them on social media because at least that way you have done something to you know pursue your interest or explore it further um mm -hmm. and i think that a lot of people are scared to just pick up the phone so scared <laughs> absolutely oh yeah i like i love that a lot i think you well you and i connected at ben venture conference but then we connected on linkedin and i think i you know i connect reconnected with you on linkedin just about doing this podcast so yeah i mean i can't stress enough too yeah how just connect with people on LinkedIn or just, you know, connect with people anywhere you can. I think one thing too, for me, just like as an aspiring entrepreneur and a student at first, um, it can, it was a little daunting for me sometimes to talk to like entrepreneurs of, you know, these big companies um, that I really looked up to because it just seems so out of reach, but I've found that a lot of like cold reached out to some people on LinkedIn and just been like, Hey, like, can I chat with you? Or can I ask you some questions? And everyone's been really receptive. And so, and the only, you know, the worst answer you can get is no, or I don't have time, which is, you know, and then that's fine. Yeah. I think that, you know, you, and I don't know if you know this, but you are actually, uh, you know, when you reach out to somebody that's uh, in a much, uh, you know, different place in their career, and has had a lot of successes, you're actually inspiring to them because they look back to the young them and think, oh, you know, when I was 20 something, you know, is this what I was doing? Or uh, it would have been so cool if I had done that, right? Mm -hmm. So it's your action that actually is motivational to them even, um, or, or could be the case. Uh, <laughs> So, so I think it goes both ways. You're learning from them, but they're also learning from you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I love that. I will say I've chatted with you and like the, the other few entrepreneurs I've chatted with already in this series all have this really, just really positive energy. And I don't know if that's just the, has to do with entrepreneurs or, you know, just the people that I've reached out to, but. Um... I think that there's two ways, right? So one is you, you just be friendly and positive and, collaborative and the other is that you be competitive and really like nasty right so we've worked with both kinds of people and uh if you just like one time this uh this surgeon came up to me and he's like oh my god i can't believe that you know you're doing this i'm doing this too and um you know you're copying me and we're like um excuse me like at that time i was actually a student so i'm like Hey, you know, like two people could be doing very similar things independent of each other. That doesn't mean that they have, you know, 
in ill intents or whatever, competition is a healthy thing. So mm -hmm. look on the positive side that, you know, there is somebody that you can compete with. Like that should be a motivator for you, not a uh, something like he was actually like, oh, um, do you have a patent on this? And I was like, oh, my God, like, why do you care? Like, I've just met you right now. Like, yeah, totally. you know, <laughs> do you even know me? Like, and then after that, I'm like, even till date, I think about that interaction. And I'm like, you know, if it had gone differently, I would have worked with that person and we could have done something together and it would have been really awesome. But instead, they just approached me as like, oh, I'm this little tiny person, you know, um, it could be my physique or I don't know really what uh, that made them be very comfortable with uh, approaching me in an intimidating way, uh, in a friendly way. So I think that's one strategy, right? So um, I just think about that all the time. And I still think, you know, if it had gone differently, where we could be. So it's a regret. And I am not sure what that other person got out of being intimidating, like an ego boost for them or what, but it could have been a lot different is yeah. what I'm going to say. Because totally. the early stages, we could have done things together. Uh, we could have improved on each other's uh, products. They're not the same products. They're actually quite different. Uh, but they were just so, um, like, I don't know, like there was so much fire, like in their voice. And so much pride and arrogance that it ruined everything, even from the get go. Right. So, yeah, I don't like, like, that's the first thing. Like if I meet somebody and I feel that vibe, like it's done, I'm not even going to talk to you. Like, yeah. Totally. Well, who, I mean, who knows how far, I mean, that probably didn't get him very far either. Cause I think, I feel like really not a lot of people, res you know, respond to that either. You know, and I think that maybe maybe he wasn't as passionate about it. And that's why he felt, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like all across the board. Even in grad school, it was like this. So yeah. hmm, even in grad school, like I had groups where, um, you know, another lab was working on something very similar to my thesis. And it, for them, it was more like a race, like who's going to publish first versus mm -hmm. um, a more collaborative group was like, hey, you're working on something basically that we are too, let's join forces. So when we joined forces, it was so much more effective because it turns out that group was in the UK. So our timeline, like I would go to sleep and they would be waking up. So basically they could pick up where I left off. And it was just like the most wonderful, like <laughs> uh, experience for both of us. So. Absolutely. Yeah. So it worked out. <laughs> I think that the competition thing, it's good. But don't be like mean, like without even understanding the other person. Like, yeah. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, too, like you're, you know, everyone's, we're all just people, you know, it's like, it's like you can still like have competition. But I think you did make a good point about competition and opportunity. It's like you can see it as being just being upset that there is competition or you can be like, oh, this is my opportunity to grow. And then, you know, you both grow and then the industry's better for it. Yeah. So. I think that's what drives technology, mm -hmm. like yeah, um, or, or just anything really, even even growth, like self growth. Like mm -hmm. you need competition. Yeah, just 
how you see it is it's your perspective. Definitely. Absolutely. So how can students get in touch with you? If, oh, if they'd like to, I mean, I'll put your name in the description. So if students want to add you on LinkedIn, her name is below. And then also if, if there's any other way that they can contact you. Yeah. So LinkedIn would be great. They can also email me directly. Um, and I, you have my email address, right? Um, so I think that's fine. Um, I have, I'm on Twitter, but not like a whole time. <laughs> so they can follow me on Twitter if they choose to. Um, awesome. And they can also reach me on our contact page on our website, uh, which is laz3d.com. So, yep. Awesome. Well, yeah, thanks for thanks for chatting with me today. I, it was great to learn more about Lazarus 3D and about your journey. And um, I know a lot of students um, are curious <laughs> to hear about it as well. So I really appreciate you taking the time. And yeah, there's some great life lessons and just uh, good chat. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I always like um, talking to really great young people. That's all for this episode, Ben Beeves. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time on the Career Lift Podcast. That's all for this episode, Ben Beeves. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time on the Career Lift Podcast.